No more stolen sisters. Today is a day of awareness for missing and murdered Indigenous women. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Friday, May 5th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we talk about how communities respond when someone disappears and the importance of the first 72 hours. Lily Mendoza is with us to talk about remembering, assisting, and advocating. South Dakota Mines researchers explore the next generation of lithium sulfur batteries. We touch base with the lead opera house. Plus, South Dakota is a state of public art, from Mount Rushmore to Dignity to Michelangelo's David. We'll preview the Sioux Falls Sculpture Walk and talk about what it means to install art for everyone. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. In downtown Rapid City, there's always a pop of color between 6th and 7th Streets. The walls along Art Alley are a canvas for up-and-coming creative minds and a great photo opportunity for visitors. Now they've put out a call for new artists. SDPB's CJ Keen checks in. While those huge graffiti murals might make for some eye-catching social media snaps, behind each is an artist with their own family, career, and dreams. Art Alley is organized through the Doll Art Center. Leah Killian is the center's communication director. She says they're trying to rethink what public art is. I think it's wonderful to have this public space because in so many cases when a city contemplates public art, it gets really bougie really quickly and you need $500,000 to install a sculpture. And, and those are wonderful, but this serves a part of the population that can't afford to, say, pay $180 for a ticket to a show. Killian says spray painting the side of a building is a medium that comes with baggage. Street art isn't typically an art form that's accepted. We look at it and we think it's graffiti while failing to acknowledge the beauty and the, the humanity that's being shared there. And so Art Alley, which has become a phenomenal tourist attraction, brings a lot of life to downtown. It allows us to really appreciate these different forms of art and to see them in an ever-changing landscape. That constant change creates a living alleyway that evolves each day in ways both big and small. New murals can pop up overnight in any number of styles, occasionally sponsored by the Rapid City Arts Council. Despite its popularity, there is still a need for new painters with artistic visions beyond quickly thrown tags. Come here, we'll give you a voice. We'll give you a canvas to paint whatever your message is on there for those people who feel so unincluded and feel so silenced. It's still, it's still there for them. You know, and that's one of the reasons why it's important for us to keep Art Alley. Graffiti did start as a form of self-expression somewhat against the man. It was an act of rebellion, but it morphed into true talented people making incredible things. And according to the Dahl Center's education director, Melissa Nelson, it might be easier to get the ball rolling on your first mural than you think. The permits for our alley are, are free. There's no charge to get a permit, and almost everybody's approved. So it's a pretty easy, simple process that you would do anywhere. One regular contributor to Art Alley is Ramon Barica, also known by his artistic handle, Comey. One of his pieces, a mural on the south end of the alley, is something of a self-portrait. The two faces are merged together, like the dichotomy that we play with, you know, the good, the bad. Everything in your life is 
always going to be two-sided and it's vibrant it pops that's my style i want everything to be in your face i want to make pieces that you can't forget if you look at this you're going to go to sleep and be like oh yeah i saw that really cool thing I'm not going to go to bed thinking about a landscape I saw at a dentist's office, you know. Comey says his transition from pencils to spray paint was a fast one. Just go for it. Like, with me, I this is what I want to do full time. And if you have something that gives you that itch and that drive, like, why hold yourself back? You don't have to listen to what anyone says. Like, that's what art is. It's freedom. It's expression. Like, you can't have expression and freedom if you're in a box. But there's another piece to being an Art Alley painter. Comey says you need to be able to let go of your work because inevitably it'll be tagged over by unofficial illegal graffiti. Part of me is sad because I want people to like view it as it was intended to be viewed, you know. At the same time, Art Alley's about turning a page and moving on, you know. So the fact that someone else wants to create over it doesn't bother me. Another regular is Katie Jo Dufloth or Lumi. She sees the consistent turnover of the work in Art Alley as just a part of the space. I'm very capable of letting go of a piece and that's something that took me a long time to deal with. Like I used to treat it like a masterpiece and if it gets destroyed, like I'm completely distraught because of it. But I think I, as, as I've aged, I've learned that it's part of the graffiti world. Lumi says in the modern art market, there's true value in making some pieces wholly accessible. The art world has become like so saturated with the numbers. Composition and themes are being compromised for the sake of it. So I think eliminating the money side of it has helped me to be more authentic and be more honest with what I want to show. To display your work in places that you're not going to profit off of it helps not only people connect to it better, but it allows you to be like more you. There is a small but welcoming community of artists involved with Art Alley, and their murals are usually visible in the alley for a few months before gradually being covered up by other tags. I'm SDPB's CJ Keen. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. South Dakota corn could one day go where no stover has gone before. South Dakota Mines received a new $750,000 NASA EPSCOR grant to research the possibilities. The research looks into how residue from bioprocessing plants could help to fuel next-generation lithium sulfur batteries from your cell phone to space. Dr. Weibing Xing is the Pearson Endowed Chair and Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering at South Dakota Mines. Dr. Rajesh Shend is a Professor of Chemical and Biological Engineering at Mines. And Dr. Edward Duke is a Professor of Geology and Geological Engineering at Mines. He is also the Director of the South Dakota Space Grant Consortium and South Dakota NASA EPSCOR program. They are all gathered around the table at SDPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital Studio in our Rapid City spaces. I am so excited to have them here. Dr. Shand, let's start with you first. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about your work right before this breakthrough collaboration. What were you studying? We were studying uh, conversion of corn store and that is the uh, plant residue after you harvest those grains. 
and how conversion of that into valuable uh, value-added products. And one of the product was uh, carbon uh, for energy storage. Uh, so this was the grant uh, that was funded uh, by Department of Energy, uh, and we started working on this uh, in 2019. So this is kind of a part of uh, the modulation uh, of uh, the carbon material uh, for energy storage. Of course, in addition to the carbon material, we were also looking at uh, conversion of corn store into uh, some organic chemicals such as phenol, uh, polymers such as polylactide, uh, etc. So Dr. Jing, your expertise is in next generation lithium batteries and you joined the mechanical engineering department and there is a, a moment of scientific synergy. Tell me about that. Yes, so um, thank you for uh, inviting us. So um, I start uh, you know, joining the school mines uh, from the uh, industry, so where I kind of doing the uh, lithium sulfur battery for a number of years. So after joining the school mines, uh, you know, one day, you know, Dr. Shandy just, you know, called me and say, okay, we, uh, let's just talk about, you know, collaboration to see if we can, what we can do to advance the battery uh, technology. So we met and then just talked, you know, uh, in general, you know, planning. And then one day, I actually, I still recall, you know, I, one afternoon, I, I, I received a phone call from Dr. Shandy say, okay, we have this, you know, polymer nanolayer coated material. What what we can do about it? I was, you know, thinking, you know, um, at that time, nobody actually, you know, even tried, you know, um, putting this type of material into the battery application. So I say, okay, let's just give it a try. And then I, I was thinking about, you know, some kind of a, another layer coating on the, uh, you know, sulfur battery material. So. Um, you know, a year later, uh, after, you know, um, some trials, and then we confirm, you know, reconfirm, it's just a phenomenon that, you know, this kind of nano-coated, you know, battery material kind of, you know, give us, you know, a boost of energy and uh, overcome some of the, uh, you know, uh, technical challenges. So this is just classical, you know, uh, scientific, you know, um, findings and uh, so uh, we are so excited, and then with this story, we kind of, you know, put this into a, a, a full proposal. Indeed, you know, I think the reviewers have agreed with us that, you know, this is indeed a scientific, you know, uh, breakthrough. And uh, uh, so they, like, gave us a chance, opportunity to further develop this, you know, into a advanced lithium sulfur battery. Yeah. Dr. Duke, I know it's more complicated than hey, let's give this a try, and then <laughs> there's a breakthrough. But how often in science is collaboration like this really war rewarded? And is there something culturally about South Dakota Mines that creates a collaborative environment that's different than other places? Or is this just how science works? Help me understand. Well, thanks, Laurie. Um, well, really, in the, uh, the program that I manage, the EPSCOR that you mentioned, um, we uh, we seek to create collaborations, uh, both um, interdisciplinary at the school institutional level, but also between institutions. So, for example, on this program, on this project, we have a collaborator in the chemistry department at USD. Typically, we require for these proposals 
two or three institutions to work together. So um, whether it leads to huge breakthroughs, we at least hope that it increases the uh, uh, research capacity and the research collaborations within the state. That's really the goal of these things. I want to go back to Dr. Shendi and talk about this energy research in general. There is a sense of urgency to this research. How important do you think this discovery could potentially be? Well, this is a great question, Laurie. This absolutely in energy sector, uh, especially uh, this uh, energy storage devices that are used for a number of applications uh, using electric, uh, you know, uh, electric vehicles, you know, some medical appliances, consumer electronics, and many others. Uh, there are capacitors, supercapacitors, batteries are commonly used. And in some of these devices, carbon is used as one of the electron material. Now, at the moment, the carbon that is uh, manufactured, uh, at least on the industrial scale, uh, it comes from pet coke, we call it. It is coming from coal. Uh, so a lot of different feedstocks are currently being used. And those have significant uh, you know, carbon footprint. And that carbon footprint has been estimated somewhere around uh, more than 18 kilogram of carbon dioxide per kilogram of carbon produced. So one of the uh, thrust areas that my group is looking into that making this electrode material from uh, sort of renewable and sustainable feedstock, and that is biomass. So for the energy sector, I think this will be a great um, uh, sort of, a, I would call it as a big deal from the science point of view, uh, based on the results what we currently have. Hmm. It's essentially turning waste into something that we all need, and we're just beginning to understand what this might be like. Dr. Zhang, talk to me about commercial potential, about what happens next. Is it too soon to ask that question? Yeah, so um, actually, it's actually on the horizon, actually, for the lithium sulfur battery. So as we know, lithium-ion battery has been, you know, for the last 30-plus years since it's, you know, uh, the, uh, you know uh, commercialization. So uh, people are looking for, like, NASA, you know, and then the uh, DOD, and then, you know, defense, and then, you know, uh, con consumer, all the... Um, sectors looking for, you know, higher energy density. And then, for example, you know, the, the electric vehicle, you need a longer drive distance, all that. So that's actually required high energy. So lithium sulfur battery technology kind of represents one of the most, you know, promising, you know, next generation chemistries. So with uh, the uh, promise in that, you know, the uh, sulfur is, you know, uh, less expensive and then is abundant. So and then also high energy, high energy. So uh, obviously the reason that it's not being commercialized is because it has technical challenge by its own. So that's kind of why this discovery is kind of you know uh, important. And then NASA supports you know that the further development of this one. I see the future of this one is that uh, um, this is the direction for the, um, the to go. 
And then with the, you know, collaboration, with the, you know, the focused, you know, the research, we hope that we can bring this into clo to it closer to the commercialization level. So that uh, I would see, I would say maybe in a is this is near future or midterm or near term of endeavors. Also, hopefully we bring this, you know, sooner rather than later to the commercialization. Yeah, Dr. Duke, I'm going to give you the last word. What about this do you want to leave people? with as uh, listeners across the state are sort of processing what's happening, the scientific discovery, the excitement of it, the unknown, the, the grant, which could research more possibilities. What's our takeaway today, Dr. Duke? Well, I think the one thing that's interesting is that uh, for the past 20 or more years, the state of South Dakota has had a, a strategic plan for research and development. And one of the th main themes was um, advancing um, uh, value-added agriculture, the type of thing that Dr. Oshende has been working on. But looking forward, you know, so a lot of that work went into um, new ways of, of producing ethanol, for example. Mm -hmm. But looking forward 20 or 30 years when society wants us to move away from carbon-based fuels, it would be, I think, a very interesting twist if the one of the things that replaced those fuels was uh, also produced from the same corn that is no longer being used for ethanol, but is now going into the, the lithium batteries that are fueling those vehicles once we move away from, from carbon sources. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a, to me, it's a sort of an interesting confluence of different things going on, technical, societal, uh, economic things in the state. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Dr. Edward Duke, Dr. Raja Shendi, and Dr. Weibing Jing. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for being here with us. We appreciate your time and expertise. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. This week is a National Week of Action for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Today, May 5th, is a day of national awareness. Now, this is a complicated story because it's intersectional, it's systemic, it's about a spectrum of violence against Indigenous women, children, and two-spirited people, and as you'll hear today, it is about how people and communities respond. Our guest this hour is Lily Mendoza, one of the co-founders of the Red Ribbon Skirt Society in the Black Hills, and she as well is with us from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in our Rapid City space. Lily, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm uh, delighted to have you, but of course the topic is, as always, serious, uh, complicated, not necessarily improving although we are seeing some responses that work and we're learning more about responses. Bring somebody into this conversation for the first time. Since colonization, violence against indigenous women has been part and parcel to systems of oppression. What do you want people to understand about why that matters today? Right. Um, you know, um, I'm with the Red Ribbon Skirt Society, and, and a lot of the work that we do, of course, is with um, MMIW, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Children, and Two-Spirit. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been happening to our women for, you know, 
you know, 500 years or more, um, you know, from colonization, uh, people coming onto, in, onto our land, and, um, you know, really kind of um, targeting our Native American women, um, not having respect for them and, and really and violating them. And this has happened for, you know, years and years and years. And that, that kind of has carried over um, into what's going on today. You know, a lot of our, um, a lot of our Native women are targeted. And um, so, so that's kind of where it's at right now. And, and so those, that's the epidemic and crisis that we're dealing with today and have been dealing with for quite some time. What kinds of educational and information sharing systems do you have in place to share with young women and girls with Native children to explain, yes, you are going to be targeted without creating, you know, a culture of just complete fear. It's got to be so complicated to state the facts um, without slipping into despair. Right. Well, you know, we do we do a lot of education and awareness in community. Um, we also do it in, in schools and um, anywhere from um, kindergarten all the way up to to um, high school. So we do we do we do that. And we're, we are prepared to get that message message out to those young people. And so, of course, we have to of course, we have to be very careful when we do that. Um, and so, you know, we're able to do that. And here here's the thing. Um, families know about this, so it's nothing new to them. Yeah. Um, even with even with the little kids, you know, they hear they hear it, um, they talk about it. They have their relatives have, have gone missing and murdered. So, for for us to go and speak to it, it's really nothing new. Um, it, but what our part is to go in and educate and talk about how they can keep themselves safe um, within their community. So so really, that's the work that we do. Tell me about the Red Ribbon Skirt Society's work, let's say, in the first 72 hours after you find out a community member has gone missing. Right. Well, one of the main things that we do is we work with the families. And um, what our concern is is helping those families um, navigate through that grief. And once we connect with those families, then it's very, it's very long term. You know, um, I've been working with those families since, you know, when we started in 2016 and I'm still working with them today because, um, you know, some of our families, they have, um, they're still missing, you know, their, their mother, their daughter, their nieces, they're still missing. And so they're really dealing with complicated grief and how do you, how do you grieve through that? And so that's the kind of, um, support we, we provide for those families and we do that by connecting with them, continuing to have conversations with them, and also um, our creation of our healing, our healing room um, that we've created where, pe- where families can go into that space and pray. Yeah, tell us about the Center for Healing, Prayer, and Remembrance. Where is that and how are people using it? Right. Well, you know, um, right now um, it's set up at the Waterfront Gallery in Pier. Yeah. And um, we, ha- we used to have it where my bookstore was, and of course I, I don't have my bookstore anymore, so we cu- we're, we're, we're slowly finding a home for that healing room. And so right now it's in Pierre, it's set up at the gallery. Um, you know, we have an altar, we have a healing room in there, we have dresses hanging by, by the waters down there. Mm-hmm. And um, so families can go there, they can pray, they can put items on the altar, and even families whose names aren't on those dresses, they are welcome to go in and do that. So it's something that has really been needed, uh, um, you know, in, in, our, in our communities. 
And so it kind of is turning out to be a really great thing because it'll be traveling to different communities and it, it's easier for um, our people to have access to it. Yeah. When you see someone's name pinned in fabric to one of these dresses, these representational dresses, I mean, you got to add new names. You got to add new right. names all the time. What is that process right. like? And um, yeah, deep breath. What is how often are you putting things on and how often are you unpinning names because people have been found? Right. Well, I, I can tell you this. We, we haven't unpinned a name yet. Okay. Um, but we continue to do that. Um, so say, for example, you know, just recently, um, you know, ran into um, a woman I, I, yesterday. Okay. Yeah. And um, I knew about her case. Um, I, I just visited with her. Um, she shed a lot of tears and, you know, my, I said, you know what, let's put her name on a dress. Okay. So for her to be able to know that her, her daughter's name is, will be on a dress and that her daughter will always be remembered. We will always say her name. Um, those are the kinds of things that help, help those families really heal. Okay. Um, in addition to our missing and murdered indigenous women, you know, there's always the, the violence, the domestic violence. And so that word missing and murdered are really critical because we do have a lot of our women that are murdered, um, not necessarily at MMIW, mm -hmm. but they have, they're murdered maybe in a domestic violence situation. So that's something that we're also taking a look at because those families also need a space to go and pray. I talked with South Dakota Attorney General Marty Jackley earlier in the week about some of the efforts of coordination from his office. He felt that he felt confident that we were maybe ahead of other states or other regions in addressing this problem. Um, what do you know about current policy and what still, what do you want to say publicly about what needs to happen next? Like, wh where are we? How well are we doing here? Because it doesn't feel like we're doing very well to me. I'll be honest. Right, right. Um, and I'm being honest, too. I don't think so. Okay. Um, I'm, I, I've been doing this work since 2016. I'm aware of those, um, those projects or programs or initiatives that have come down from D.C., okay, to filter down into the states. And I don't know that the states are paying attention to that. Um, and especially when you're looking at um, are they going to put dollars into to this movement um, to help our women and to help the families. I, I, to be honest with you, I don't think that's happening, okay? Um, and so one of the things that we, we can do as a group of women, as a society of women, of women uh, we're not attached to anybody. We don't have to answer to any federal government, okay? So um, we don't have to go to anybody to approve a conversation that we're going to have with a partner and or with a victim's family. That is where a lot of the issues lie. We don't have to do that. We're a society of women, and this is the work that we're doing. And, you know, and we're all volunteers. We are all volunteers. And, um, you know, we, we don't depend on federal dollars. We get donations, and the donations that we get, they go to help the families of those victims. Mm. I also asked him what upset him, like what, you know, not what wakes you up at night, but like what makes you angry, and he brought up lack of coordination between law enforcement 
entities, jurisdictional problems. Um, what upsets you about the way the laws are written that can cause confusion and lack of prosecution? Right. Um, you know what? I'm, I'm upset about it, too. You know, um, there's the whole issue of jurisdiction. You know, we have stories of, you know, women that have been murdered right on the line. Uh, well, who's going to take that on? Okay, so in the meanwhile, while they're trying to figure out whose jurisdiction and who's going to take that on, um, whoever the, the um, perpetrator is, is he's, he's on the run, okay? Um, so it's all about time. It's all about people working together. And uh, the Not Invisible Act that came down last year, that was part of all of this. You know, let's figure out how we can get past the jurisdiction. We need to work together. Don't know if that's happening. I mean, I met with the individuals that were um, nominated to be a part of, of, of that group. Don't know that that's happening. And I, I shouldn't say I don't know. I do know it's not happening, yeah. you know. We want, I, I guess, I, awareness is one thing. Outrage is another. And hopelessness and feeling like there is no response can be a safe place for people to hide and not be accountable to solving issues. Um, do you see that? Do you see a lot of like, you know, shrugging shoulders, throwing up your arms? Hey, this is a problem. It's been a problem for a long time. It's super complicated. We, we're not sure we can solve it. We need to have a conversation, make incremental progress. All that can be very frustrating when you have a daughter who's gone. Right, right. Um, you know, we're dealing with a case right now, and um, it's only been two years and um, there are uh, three individuals that were arrested. Um, you know, they're saying there isn't enough evidence. Okay. Um, and so, so they're closing her case. And we're just like, that's wrong. That's not right. And um, kind of what we're seeing is that, you know, um, election years, you know, somebody else is put into those critical positions. Um, there's files on their desk. They pick up a file and don't spend too much time on it, you know. And it's like, okay, well, well we're just going to close this case. And, um, and that's really hard for families to hear. They're angry. And so that's the kind of support and advocacy that we do for those families. Um, because we're, when they're in those settings and they're being told this, it becomes really confusing. They're once again put in a state of grief. And so our work is we will attend those meetings with those families because we can write down, we can remember things for them. And so right now we're we dealing with the case right now with the family. Um, and we, we are, we are going to make sure that they open the, reopen that case, you know, because it shouldn't be closed, should not be closed. Yeah. How important are indigenous practices when you provide support for families? Right. Right. It's it's really very critical, you know, because we know and I, you know, I've been in Rapid City for, I don't know, this is my home, 35 years. This mm -hmm. is where I raised my children, my grandchildren. And I know having been in this community is that having um, our community here within Rapid City, our Lakota people, our Lakota values, and how we practice that is very, very critical because it's, it becomes a different situation if we have a victim um a victim's family walk into a setting, um, and it, it's it's scary for them. You know, it is very scary for them because 
there's still that the still the idea of non-natives and natives within our within our city okay um, as much as we start to bring everybody together and work together, that's a difficult thing because we are looking at generations, generations of genocide, first of all. Um, how, do we heal, how do we heal through that? Because we're also dealing with generations of generations of those individuals that committed that genocide. Okay, So it's really, really learned behavior. And so it's really simple for people in position of power to walk away from that and say, hmm, not that important. There are some awareness events and a gala coming up. What do you want to tell us about ways people can connect? Um, give us a little bit. Uh, we mentioned the, um, I'm sorry, Waterfront. Uh, waterfront, the waterfront ga the Gallery yeah. and Pier. We mentioned mm -hmm. uh, the exhibition there and the healing space there. Um, what mm -hmm. else is happening to raise more awareness? Well, um, today, um, um, we've been working on for almost a year now, the Redress, uh, Redress Gala, okay? Mm -hmm. um, it's gonna be at the Holiday and, Pla Holiday and Plaza, and what's really exciting for us is that we've had a lot of really great sponsors, businesses, yeah. um, that are, they're bringing their employees in, and that's really exciting for us because they're gonna learn about this crisis, and for them to be there to see the families, because families are going to be key in this, they're going to be speaking, you know. And so for our partners now, I really do see them as partners, these different businesses in Rapid City that just have stepped up. Um, they're, going to, they're going to hear those stories firsthand to get a better understanding, and maybe some of them don't even know about this crisis. Right. Okay. So that's the exciting thing that's going to be happening with this gala. Um, you know, and the other thing, um, I'm sure you've talked about this with Chef Sean Sherman. Mm -hmm. um, he's one of the, what, top 100 influential people in for Time magazine. Yeah. Um, he's going to be there. He's going to be cooking for us. I mean, how great is that? You know, <laughs> that and it's so wonderful. So wonderful. And we have a lot of young women that are going to be attending. We have a group of women that flew in from Minneapolis that do MMIW work over there. They're going to be premiering their podcast. We have groups of middle-aged girls coming up from um, Oglala um, Education Department that they've, they've, they're bringing them. And so that's another exciting thing. We are really going to be face-to-face -face with these young people and really encouraging them, you know, really encouraging them to say, this is going to be your work now. You know, yeah. you've got to start now. Yeah. Kind of thing. I can't believe how many times I will, you know, we'll have a conversation like this, Lily, and you've been really generous with your time with me over the years and explaining and answering questions again and again. And I will get emails today saying I did not know that. And I will mm -hmm. get emails today, I can almost guarantee you, saying that can't possibly be true. And then I have to, you know, uh, engage with a listener who maybe needs a little more facts and data um, and, and data points to help them understand what's happening. And uh, before I let you go, I also had a listener who, who suggested that I ensure we have tribal affiliations for our guests. So I have you as an enrolled member of Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. Is that correct? Right, right. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Um, you can find the Red Ribbon Skirt Society on Facebook. Any other places you want people to connect, Lily? You know what? <clears throat> I always give out my email, which is lilym at rap.midco.net. 
I always give out my phone number. I, I'll take a call from anybody. Um, 605-431-8231. I can't give out my website because it's down. I saw that. So we'll get there. We'll, we'll get, get that there. back up. But no. uh, find right, them on social right. media. Lily Mendoza, <laughs> it's always an honor to be in the same space with you, even though we are on separate sides of the state right now. But I appreciate your time. Thank you. Right. Thank you, Lori. Let's take a moment now to visit a cultural jewel of the Northern Hills. Thomas Golden is the executive director of the Homestake Opera House in Leed. There is community pride in the Opera House. It's a facility that has evolved dramatically since its construction in 1914. As the building has found new purpose, so has Golden. His path in life has taken him from North Dakota around the world and now to his home in Leed. My parents moved us down to the Northern Hills when I was in, in high school. You know, graduated uh, in Sturgis, took off to USD for two years. Was a, a kid who needed a gap year, who didn't know he needed a gap year, so I struggled greatly trying to do college. Um, I ended up joining the Navy for seven years, uh, went around the world, uh, came back to South Dakota. Um, and honestly, we were at a point as a family that we thought we're probably going to leave South Dakota. We're, we're, we're pretty done here. We, we think we've done everything we're going to do. I ran into people from here at the Opera House. I didn't know it existed. Um, I got introduced. The development director job came open and was offered it. And then uh, when the executive director who was here at the time left, I was asked to take on the, the role, and I did so happily. So that's, that's how I, I end up here. I walk 20 feet and I'm in a, I'm in a grand, uh, beautiful theater. So everybody wants to be on stage. We all want to act. We all want to get, get in the spotlight. But on the whole, if you told me I couldn't be in the play, but I could usher or serve concessions, I was happy. So I've, it's always really been ultimately about being in the building and helping to make the thing happen. And that's exactly what I get to do. So it's exciting. That auditorium is nowhere else. Uh, and you know, I love I love a lot of theaters. I I, I have a, a passion for really cool buildings, and we have a lot of great theaters in South Dakota. But this is one of a kind. This is its own thing. And even in its current state, you know, people people can't believe what they see here. Uh, and and the fact that we bring world class entertainment into it, you know, we're not asking you to just come see the cool building, which should be enough. But it's more than that. You know, we're, you're going to see, you're going to see world-class entertainers on that stage as well. Thomas Golden is executive director for the Homestake Opera House in Leed. He's managing a campaign to raise funds to complete the restoration of the facility. Golden and the Opera House are featured in the Dakota Life episode, Greetings from Leed. I tuned in last night. If you missed it, you can watch online at sdpb.org watch. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, at the top of the hour, we brought you the story of splashes of art decorating a Rapid City street. Let's bookend the show now with another story about art that everyone could enjoy. The Sculpture Walk in Sioux Falls lets visitors meander through downtown to find and appreciate 67 sculptures scattered throughout the area. The 2023 exhibition is set for installation this weekend, Jim Mathis is a board member of Sculpture Walk 
and he has stopped by the SDPB Kirby Family Studio before all the heavy lifting begins. Jim, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about what happens this weekend in Sioux Falls. Okay, so as we speak, the artists are arriving here in Sioux Falls and bringing their sculptures with them. Uh, we're going to have a nice reception with them at the Holiday Inn tonight. Uh, kind of welcome them, celebrate our 20th year here in Sioux Falls, if you can believe it. Uh, and then we all get up really early tomorrow morning and we will start putting these sculptures on the pedestals, welding them all in place so they don't go away. Uh, and uh, we should be done by 10 or 11 o'clock tomorrow morning, and we'll have all 67 pieces in place. We've got uh, probably 15, 16, 17 in place right now, but we'll get all of them in by this weekend. How many from 2022 stay, have been purchased, and will stay somewhere in the community? Do you have any? Uh, because there, that sometimes yeah. there are some yep. that somebody has bought and said this needs to be a permanent installation. You bet. The uh, the city purchases the uh, People's Choice every year. Okay. Uh, so uh, last year, the People's Choice was uh, Big Elk that was downtown okay. on Phillips. Uh, that's going to move over to the uh, city center building. Uh, and then there are a few other pieces that will be staying in town, too. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, a Ukraine artist uh, by the name of Serge Majnevsky. Uh, we purchased one of his pieces, uh, and we placed it at the Washington Pavilion in uh, at the Visitor Center there. Nice. And so that will stay with us forever. And uh, he worked out a deal with us. If we bought it, he donated all of the money back to his hometown in Ukraine uh, to help with the uh, war efforts there. So wow. uh, it was a chance for us to do some good and get a piece of fantastic art. And uh, I got a chance to talk to Serge this morning uh, and we installed his piece actually uh, about 6.30 today. So <laughs> Nice. Installation for people who haven't seen it. Some of these sculptures are small and liftable. Others are quite monumental in size. Absolutely. Takes a, takes a crew, right? It takes a crew. Uh, you know, the one we did with uh, Serge this morning, uh, he works in aluminum. It's lightweight. It's mm. easy. Uh, one guy could pick it up. Uh, but we had one that was installed a couple of weeks ago that we had to bring in a crane because it's stone and about six feet tall. And uh, so it weighs thousands of pounds. And uh, so we've got them everywhere in between where uh, some it'll be three, four guys can lift it up and put it on the pedestal. And uh, there are a few that we still need a crane or a forklift. So we'll have a crew with a forklift out uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, they'll start at about five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> All right. Tell us a little bit about how um, how far and wide does this reach now? The imprint of Sculpture Walk, I'm not saying it's the only one in the country, but it, it has it, it a has, footprint. It yeah. does have a footprint, yes. Yeah. So uh, our program, uh, in addition to the, the 67 sculptures right downtown, uh, we have a smaller program of about a half a dozen sculptures at USF, uh, another probably close to two dozen at uh, Avera McKinnon Hospital. Uh, we've got a satellite program in the Cathedral District. Uh, we've got satellite programs in Watertown and uh, Yankton and Vermilion uh, and at USD. And then we work with other sculpture programs uh, kind of around the country. So we we will take some of our pieces that were here last year and we'll pass them on to Mankato uh, and they'll put it up uh, for the next year uh, in their community. And they, a lot of these sculptures end up getting moved around that way. 
This is public art, which means you don't need a ticket to go see it. You happen upon it accidentally Absolutely. when you're going out to dinner, when you're taking a walk in your neighborhood. The power of public art. The mission statement for Sculpture Walk is art to the people. We want to bring art to the people. So we put it right there on the sidewalk. When you're going out to uh, dinner at Minerva's or uh, to have a cocktail, you're going to run into a piece of our art and you're going to get a chance to see it and touch it and feel it. And uh, if you want to, you know, put your kid next to a piece and take the picture, that's great. There are some that are friendly that you could actually set your child on and they could sit there and kind of ride it a little bit and take a take a picture and interact with them. And one of the great things, if you happen to be in downtown Sioux Falls tomorrow morning, the artists will a lot of times kind of hang around as their pieces are being installed and you can talk to them and find out what was your inspiration? What kind of materials do you work with? Yeah. Uh, what made you make it like this? And they're more than happy to just tell you their whole story. Yeah. I love how they change in weather rain, snow. I'm always wondering if the artist thought of that, if they thought of what would happen when the weather um, intervened in the art. That's a pretty spectacular. It, like, don't just go really see it is. once. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is something you, you kind of do want to see these uh, all throughout the year as they change. You know, even uh, some of the artists will really think about how the light interacts with their pieces. And, you know, the, the way the light hits it in a morning in June is going to be very different than it is in an afternoon in December. And they take that into account. Why Sioux Falls? Uh, we had a couple of visionary folks here. Uh, Jim Clark, who was the founder of Sculpture Walk, and uh, he gave the idea to Steve Metley, who... Uh, between the two of them, you know, they kind of just became this force of nature and they said we needed to do this. So 20 years ago, they put 25 pieces of art down on Phillips Avenue. And if you remember back then, Phillips Avenue was not the pedestrian friendly place it is today. Right. Uh, but it's really evolved. I mean, you mentioned, you know, if you're going out to dinner at Minerva's, also if you're leaving the county jail. Art. Absolutely. If you don't have a home, art. You are surrounded by this and have been for quite some time. If you're brand new to town, if you're a little kid and you're kicked out of the apartment at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning and you really can't come back to 4 o'clock, you've got the library and you've got Sculpture Walk. Right. And the art is there for everyone to enjoy. And I think everybody takes something different out of each piece of art. Yeah. and. That's really the beauty yeah. of it. And that do. might be, I love this. That might be, I hate this. That might be, I am angry about this. The full range of emotions. You Absolutely. don't have to like everything that's up in this thing. Although you, the people of Sioux Falls tend to like certain things. We, we do tend we to vote. like certain things. The voters, the, the people the, who the vote. The people who vote <laughs> definitely have opinions. They yeah. tend to like uh, cute little kids and uh, yeah. animals, uh, you know, yeah. animals <laughs> and things like that. So there's lots of, you know, kind of warm, fuzzy things. I really like the more abstract pieces Uh yeah. And some people will look at them and say, what the heck is that supposed to be? You know, but uh, to each his own. Cameron Stahlheim's piece last year was um, top of my list. I love Cam's work. Uh, his piece from last year, uh, Persist, Persist uh, thank will, you. will yeah. be uh, in the Sculpture Garden at the Washington Pavilion again this year. Fantastic. So it'll still be there. And he has a new piece that I haven't seen yet, uh, but... It looks like it's going to be really nice. And he's talked about uh, kind of an iridescent 
kind of a, mm-hmm. a patina on it. So I'm excited yeah. to see that. Again, light, motion, Absolutely. materials, um, commentary. These artists bring all kinds of things. And uh, this is one of the places, again, because you don't have to buy a pass. You can come see it again and again and experience it in different ways. Yep, absolutely. Jim Mathis, good luck. Watch your back. Be safe. (laughs) Thank you Um, so much. And uh, thanks for stopping by the studio. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you this week. Our producers, of course, Ellen Kester and Ari Youngeman. Our videographer, Jordan Henderson. Our news director is Josh Chilson. Our executive producer, Kara Hetland. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, thank you for listening.